0: We all agree that every child is capable of learning to read. The Institute for Multisensory Education has been helping teachers make that happen for 25 years by offering extensive training and virtual teaching resources. Learn how to apply MC's IDA-accredited Orton-Gillingham approach based on the science of reading by signing up for their virtual trainings this spring and summer. Visit mc.com that's imse.com to register for their free virtual overviews and learn more about their extensive list of summer courses hello and welcome to teaching reading and learning the trl podcast The focus of this podcast is to elevate important conversations in the educational community in order to inspire, inform, and celebrate contributions to teaching and learning. Our guest today is Parker Palmer, who embodies the focus of this podcast. I'd like to take a moment to share Parker's biography. Parker J. Palmer is a writer, speaker, activist, and founder and senior partner emeritus of the Center for Courage and Renewal. His wisdom has reached millions worldwide through his 10 books, including the bestselling Healing the Heart of Democracy, Let Your Life Speak, The Courage to Teach, and A Hidden Wholeness. His latest bestseller is On the Brink of Everything, Grace, Gravity, and Getting Old. Parker holds a PhD in Sociology from the University of California at Berkeley and 13 honorary doctorates. The Leadership Project, a national survey of 10,000 educators, named him one of the 30 most influential senior leaders in higher education and one of the 10 key agenda setters of the past decade. In 2010, Palmer was given the William Rainey Harper Award, whose previous recipients include Margaret Mead, Ellie Wiesel, and Paulo Freire. For 20 years, the Accrediting Commission for Graduate Medical Education has given annual Parker J. Palmer Courage to Teach and Courage to Lead awards to directors of exemplary medical residency programs. Living the Questions, essays inspired by the work and life of Parker J. Palmer, was published in 2005. A member of the Religious Society of Friends, Quakers, Dr. Palmer and his wife Sharon L. Palmer live in Madison, Wisconsin. I have uh, had the pleasure of getting to know Parker over 14, 14, 15 years, and I am both personally and professionally enriched by his teaching and his life's work, um, and, and simply his way of being in the world. And if you know Parker and his work, you know that he has the deepest admiration for teachers. If you're unfamiliar with his work, I think this will be a terrific opportunity for you to get to know him. Either way, you're in for a treat. We are going to embark on a wide-ranging conversation about living your deep truth, authority in teaching, and the importance of curiosity and living on your growing edge. I am honored to be speaking today to Parker Palmer. All right, so Parker, I am deeply grateful to be with you today. Um, You and your work have just been profoundly impactful in my life and in the lives of so many others. So thank you for this gift of your time.
1: Well, it's great to see you, Laura. Thank you for having me on.
0: Absolutely, and I have so many things I just wanna talk to you about today. So let's just uh, see where the conversation takes us. Um, So- Delighted. I came, I came to know you first from Courage to Teach, and this is really, in my mind, a book about honoring a teacher's inner landscape, and you know how do we become more authentic in our work? And I know that when I was a when I was a beginning teacher, um, I found this this whole concept pretty revelatory to the idea that that's important for teaching. You know, as opposed to just teaching techniques, instructional techniques. Um, And I I reread this recently in preparing to talk to you. So I wanted to read you something from the book that, that really struck me. And maybe you can comment on this. So this is, you were talking about authority. Authority comes as I reclaim my identity and integrity, remembering my selfhood and my sense of vocation. Then teaching can come from the depths of my own truth and the truth that is within my students has a chance to respond in kind. So I wonder if you could, you know, first of all, maybe just tell us about, you know, your origins as a teacher and your what influenced you to write this, and then this whole idea of a teacher's, the depths of a teacher's truth.
1: Yeah. Well, let me let me flip those questions over and just start with a little bit on the quote you just read. Yeah. So I've um, I've long resisted the notion that. Any human activity can be reduced to technique, uh, to tips, tricks, and techniques, which is which are you know very popular. Books get sold with titles like that, mm-hmm. um, but it's not that tips, tricks, and techniques are useless in my mind. But they're not where you start. You start with the fact that teaching or whatever the human activity is is being done by somebody and who that somebody is and the extent to which their inner life has, has been examined by them um, and you know, corrected where it needs to be corrected and amplified where it needs to be amplified. Um, it matters in the doing of the profession, whether it's teaching or medicine or engineering or political leadership. You know, we we aren't robots. We aren't uh, uh, delivery machines for goods and services. We are human beings interacting in a very human enterprise called teaching and learning. Socrates, way way back, uh, before I was going to school, (laughs) said the unexamined life is not worth living, and that's a quote. You know that's emblazoned on uh, more than a few doorways in in education. But I think my work is in some ways an extension of that Socratic dictum that the unexamined life is not worth living. And I've sometimes used that at um, old commencement ceremonies, for example, where I've added something like this. If you choose to live an unexamined life, please do not go into a job that involves other people. Uh, Because if you do, you're going to end up doing damage. So the book is is basically an exploration of what it means to kind of keep clarifying your own identity and integrity, the, the depths of your own mind, heart, and soul, so that you can teach from a place that is most likely to connect with that same place in other people, in students. We can talk later about, perhaps, about how the subject plays in to that. Um, You know, as to how it all began for me, um, I'm not um, not sure that I I have a good answer to that because like a lot of growth, uh, it starts with a very tiny seed and a lot of compost and there's mystery involved in in what happens as we germinate and uh, and come to flower Um, and mystery and and grace and good luck and mentoring and just all kinds of things i mean the one thing i can say that has always kind of interested me is that um, i'm the first person in my family to go to college um uh, and and, and so it's not that I came from a learned tradition of any sort. My grandparents were blue collar workers. My dad was a businessman in Chicago uh, who came there during the depression. Um, and, and, and what I know about them is that they were open-minded, open-hearted, generous people who, who were always you know, curious about the world. Uh, we always had books in our home, and, and some of them, when, when I was a kid, were way over my head. But their titles intrigued me. Uh, and I, I did a lot of reading growing up because the, the material was was there at home. Um, and there were good conversations at home. And I, I think a lot of education is good conversation, you know, but with, a, with intent, with trajectory, with purpose, and with some with some boundaries. Um, and I, I also be, have come to believe uh, over the years that I was born baffled. <laughs> I actually, some people have sent me bumper stickers with those words, "Born baffled," uh, because 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 I think it's true. Um, I I think I emerged uh, into this world. They they slap me on the butter, whatever they do, <laughs> and knocked the breath into me. And I think I looked around and said, "Wait, what? <laughs> What's this all about? <laughs> What's going on here? This is madness, you know, or it's beautiful, or yeah, yeah. How did it get so dull when it could be so interesting? Or you know, some something along that range of responses to the outer yeah. world." And I've so I've always been curious, and I think when you've written ten books like I have, people may, may get the impression that okay, so he knew something about 10 things he, he must have, because th- he's written 10 books about different subjects. And the truth is that writing has always been a, a form of uncovering or, uh, my bafflement, of digging mm-hmm. into my bafflement, yeah. only to discover, once I've get, got that layer removed, that there's another layer of bafflement beneath that. So, I had a lot of that, I was a very undistinguished uh, (laughs) elementary school and high school student. Uh, True fact, I graduated from a high school of about 2000 people uh, in a a class of about 500, um, right in the middle, a a sort of, you know, passable C uh, average. it was. I think it was largely because I was interested in extracurricular activities more than I was in what they were <laughs> teaching me. I had some caring mentors during that time, uh, but I didn't. I don't. There aren't any, you know, sort of great academic teacher standouts. But but I had the good fortune, and it really was dumb luck, to get into a good college, Carleton College in Minnesota, and there I. I hooked up with three mentors who just changed my life, as, as happened back in the day. They were all men, but they all had spouses who um, also became important parts of my life. And I spent time in their homes. I mean, I was extraordinarily lucky to have three of these. And you know, one was the college chaplain, one was an expert in Southeast Asian religions, and the other was a physicist. Uh, who also had a degree in theology? They were all people in whom religion and science lived happily in a, and in a very honor honest and and honorable way. So I've never wrestled with, you know this this what I think is a bogus war between religion and science. Um, so, and, and what's wonderful for me is that I stayed connected with those three men as long as they lived, and one of them is still living. Um, and I talk with him on the phone. He's 95 now. Talk How with wonderful. him every now and then. So, yeah. you know, I just had a lot of good fortune along the way, and I think driven by curiosity more than anything else, by bafflement, I just became, I think I became a learner before I became a teacher. And then, of course, teaching, Rightly understood becomes a way to extend the learning journey, right? That's the way right. it's always been for me. So it's been like this kind of feed perfect feedback system.
0: feedback system, yeah, you know it's um what you said about you know teaching becomes the learning makes me think about something else that you you wrote in this book about about paradox, the paradox of teaching. and something that you wrote here about. Um, You know, the knowledge I have gained from 30 years of teaching goes hand in hand with my sense of being a rank amateur at the start of each new class. Um, Teaching always takes place at the crossroads of the personal and the public. And if I want to teach well, I must learn to stand where these opposites intersect. So it feels like curiosity, as well as holding paradox, are really important concepts to this idea of teaching?
1: Yeah, very much so, and I think you know. I think, I think what's important about holding paradox, and just to clarify for anyone listening, that you know, a paradox is one of those statements where it sounds like you've uttered two opposites, but in fact they are complementary truths. Um, the, the great Nobel Prize-winning scientist Niels Bohr, uh, who, who made the Bohr model of the atom, Bohr. Um, once said something that I think really reveals the nature of paradox. He said, the opposite of an ordinary fact is a lie, but the opposite of one great truth may be another great truth. And and so paradox is is a both-and statement rather than an either-or. And life life is full of very important either-or distinctions and not all opposites that we'd like to stick together, stick together naturally, but some do. Good example, Uh, are we as human beings made for community? Absolutely, no question about it. We are communal creatures. Are we also made for solitude? Absolutely. yeah, because there are many mm-hmm. things in in life that you just can't negotiate if you can't take that inward trip into solitude. I, I when I talk with people about it, I liken it to the the paradox that the body holds every moment of our lives, which is breathing in and breathing out. We don't think of those as opposites. We don't. It's both and yeah. because mm-hmm. together they sustain life, and that's what paradoxes do. And to break any of those great paradoxes, like saying, you know, I think I'll do community instead of solitude for the rest of my life or vice versa, is to is to break the life, the flow of life energy. It's, it would kind of be like me saying right now, you know what, Laura, I think I'm basically a breathing out kind of guy. So that's what I'm going to do for <laughs> the rest of the week. <laughs> so, <you> know, <laughs> did, Good luck with that. If I did that, I'm on the floor pretty quickly here. So... Uh, yeah, paradoxes. Teaching is filled with paradoxes, um, and 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 broader than paradox, it's filled with the need to learn how to hold tensions creatively. You know, so that uh, a teacher and a student can easily get into an impasse around the student not wanting his or her fundamental beliefs about this or that to be changed. By the information that the teacher is providing, or the argument the teacher is making, and if you if you try to deal with that through the imposition of power, you know by God this is the way it is, and you better get it straight. You're just going to reinforce the false belief. Um, if you try to deal with it by saying, "Well, whatever," you know, one truth for you, another truth for me, doesn't matter that obviously leads to bad places too. But if you can hold that tension creatively and keep inviting, honestly invite the student into a continued exploration um, of this force field that you create by holding questions in a particular way, that, that's when learning might might occur. Um, and you get buy-in from from the students rather than resistance.
0: Yeah. Yes. So, so it sounds like you're, you're talking about, you know, being boldly curious, holding paradox, living in our own truth so that we can nurture our students truth, and holding that tension, that those are all ways that that teachers can be, could I say, more I mean, this, maybe this maybe this is the courage to teach, right? Maybe this is the courageousness of well, teaching.
1: I, I think it is. I think it is because if you do all of that, um, others can look in on what you're doing and say, you're not doing your job. Your job is to get them to sit down, <laughs> shut up, memorize <laughs> learn. the information yeah. and quote learn. Mm-hmm. But, you know, all the research shows that that's not learning at all. Uh, or that it gets learned long enough to pass the test, but then for the rest of that student's life, th- that information is gone, and there's no real interest in learning. And and I'd toss, yeah. I'd toss one more concept into that mix of who you need to be as a teacher, I believe, and, and what I'd like to transmit to my students. And that's the Buddhist concept of beginner's mind. I, I love the notion of beginner's mind. Um, because what it means is you, you hold your prior knowledge and your assumptions loosely. Not, you don't deny them. You, you don't deny that careful inquiry, disciplined, rigorous inquiry into a field has come up with this or that conclusion. But it's, it's always the conclusion of the moment. There, there is no field in, 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 the, in the curriculum. Where the conclusions of 30 years ago are the same as they are today. You know, whether it's literature, physics, or sociology, mm-hmm. political science, whatever, the learning, uh, inquiry is an ongoing process and it's affected by all kinds of things, including who is included in the circle. There was a long time in our society, sadly, when People of color and women were excluded from the circle of inquiry, but as they came in and started to make a claim on the learning enterprise, new things were seen. Um, The teaching of US history became or should become very different when looked at through these other lenses than it it was when I was in in grade school, you know, uh, 70 years ago. Um, So, uh, Beginner's mind is the ability to say, well, I think I know what this is all about, but maybe I don't. Um, it's, it's, it's a way of talking about the humility that must be um, cultivated to, to really learn and to really teach. Um, it, and, and that's that's always a risk. I mean, certainly in higher education, unfortunately, but Sometimes gets cultivated as a kind of arrogance of knowledge, you know, like, hey, I'm the expert here, so sit down and shut up. Um, That's what I get paid for. But again, in in terms of teaching or anything else that a person wants to do with his or her knowledge, that's not a good way to go in. It it shuts more doors than it than it opens. And I think learning is about opening doors. And just one more thing, there's a very important distinction between Authority, which you mentioned earlier as part of my vocabulary, authority and power. So, power is the imposition of control from the top down. You know, I'm the guy with a PhD, I'm the guy who hands out the grades. So, I'm going to get you to sit down, shut up, and memorize uh, because you're all interested in getting a good grade. And that's the way you're going to get one from me, just by rote, you know. Authority is, is power that's granted to you by people because they find you credible and compelling.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: So I, I'm, I have no interest in having power over people. I have an interest in holding this whole thing in a way that authorizes everybody, that authorizes every voice in the room. And that's that's tricky. That's that's you know that's like choreographing a big, complicated dance to fast-moving yeah. music. Yeah. Uh, mm. But it it can be done uh, as you as you uh, learn your steps over time.
0: Yeah, that's that's a that's a and one of the reasons I chose that is because of the word authority, um, because I think that that does sometimes become conflated with power. And really, when you say you want to authorize, that makes it, that makes it really, that, that helps me to understand that, you know, that through your reclaiming your identity and integrity, you know, your sense of vocation, you are helping to authorize your students to seek and hold that same truth.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And if we think about it just in terms of our everyday lives, if we're face to face with a person who's phoning it in. Or reading it from a script, um, we, we'd be fools to buy in, you know, because the signals that person is getting are coming from another planet, the sales manager or yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. the, the curriculum director or right, whoever, right, yeah. whoever wound this person up and set them in motion with these marching orders. But if we're with a person who seems to be authoring his or her own voice, his or her own insights. You know if i if I am authoring my responses to your questions in a in a kind of face-to-face spontaneous way rather than picking up a book or a piece of paper here and reading them off a script, it it's a, just a different vibe yeah. <laughs> and we know yeah, the difference for sure. humanly
0: yeah, we do um and I also wanted to just pick up on what you said about that beginner's mind because that that idea that you know, you you know you may have 30 years of teaching or you may be you may have a phd you may be an expert but coming in with that beginner's mind and and thinking of yourself as a rank amateur at the start of each class that humility i think is important to continue to open us up to our curiosity and to our you know following those threads of bafflement so that we're constantly enriching our own personal and professional selves. And I this this really rings so true to me now when I think about um, you know the landscape in which we're operating around reading instruction and you know looking at the 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 growth, the exponential growth of what we know about the acquisition of, of reading and you know, how we can't, we can't be doing things the same way we've done them for 30 years. We have to, you know, continue to grow and learn and keep that beginner's mind and keep that humility and that openness so that we can unfold new ideas into our practice. And I think that's one of the things that, that we're really striving to do right now.
1: Yeah, and, um, I, you know, I, that's the way advances in every field have happened. Um, not just the humanities, not just pedagogy, but subatomic physics, You know, it's 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 always the person who says, wait a minute, there's another way to look at this.
0: Yeah. Right. So how do you what what advice would you give um, or what wisdom do you have to share around how teachers can continue to tap into this courage that we've talked about, you know, day in and day out as they go about the work of teaching?
1: Well, you know, I I I. I think I would do teachers a disservice if I didn't first say that's a really complicated and challenging question in our time, because, as, as most thoughtful people know, our educational institutions are themselves getting signals from another planet about what they should need to do. Uh, the the decision making, the public policy decision making around education has very rarely involved having a teacher or two at the table when those decisions are made. And so they're often made by people who really don't know about education or really aren't tuned into the needs of students and the people who teach them, but instead are tuned in to what will gain them votes and make them look good with their base. And sadly, and this is a sad but dominant fact of American life, a lot of problems that teachers have nothing to do with creating, teachers get scapegoated for uh, in in relation to, let's say, bad educational outcomes, which are much, you know, which are rooted in poverty and in food insufficiency in among kids in a quarter of American families and them showing up without breakfast in their stomachs, barely able to stay awake, let alone learn. And so education, public education, teachers have become the scapegoats for politicians, the public and the press on way too many occasions. So the first thing I have to say about how you keep your spirit alive is that unless you're in a really good school where the leaders are doing what they ought to do for you, which is to run interference against all of that stuff, um, as if they were the offensive line clearing the field yeah. for yeah. you to do yeah. your thing
0: right, right,
1: uh, as, as well as you can. Unless you're in a school like that, I think you you have to, we have to cultivate or teachers have to cultivate teacher leadership among themselves. And that means coming together in in effective modes of organization that allow teachers to press up against the deforming pressures that come from administration and from outside the school that that might sort of strangle uh, their their best, best practices in teaching. And, and there are stories, as you know, of teachers who, who have done that, where you know, some <clears throat> they suddenly find themselves in a situation where <clears throat> the, the results on standardized tests, high stakes testing, get used to determine who gets merit pay and who gets docked. Teachers have come together and said, no, that's not gonna work with us because whatever happens here, we're gonna pool everything and then distribute it evenly among ourselves. So you can stop playing that little game. We are the resistance, you know.
0: Yeah, right. This is
1: what democracy looks like. Sure. So that there's one step involved in doing that with administrators, with school boards, with parent-teacher associations, and being, you know, politically savvy. Um, I actually I've written about a belief I have that all forms of professional education should include a component of uh, of learning how to of learning some of the tools of a community organizer uh, because it's a, it's a, an effective model for contributing to positive change in, in your institution. So I think, you know, in addition to that, <clears throat> then we need to find ways to help teachers take heart in a profession which they entered with great heart. Great heart Most of them, yeah. they didn't They didn't do it because they thought it would be a road to wealth and fame. They did it because they care about kids and they care about learning and they care about the future of the society. Um, And then that gets stomped on as time goes by with these institutional conditions. And so the question becomes, how do we help teachers take heart again so they can give heart to their students, which I think is what good teaching is ultimately all about. And that too is a big subject, but I can reduce it to a quick um, soundbite, I guess. This is this is why I founded almost 30 years ago, the Center for Courage and Renewal.
0: Yes, um, yes.
1: And it's, which now has over 300 facilitators all across this country and in other places around the world where we gather, um, groups of teachers in retreat, not just once, but over a period of time, and help them build a community of of, uh, inspiration and encouragement and and even the, the sharpening of skills, but especially of recommitment to teaching, which teachers can only do for each other and within themselves in that kind Mm -hmm. of community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can can provide, we can provide, the Center for Courage and Renewal can provide the space, the safe spaces in which they can have honest conversations and and work with uh, sustaining the viability of their professional commitments. But, only they can do the work in those spaces that that, that results in um, increased teacher reten- retention and morale. And we've seen that happen in our programs over the past 30 years. Um, there's, I wrote a, a whole book about the nature of those programs, which are based in what we call a circle of trust of maybe 25 teachers. And, and the name of that book is A Hidden Wholeness Um, And so if anybody's interested in the kind of nuts and bolts of that circle of trust process and and all that surrounds it, that's where you'll find it.
0: Thank you so much for bringing up the Center for Courage and Renewal, because I definitely wanted to talk about that today and let our listeners know more about that. And actually, in the show notes, I'll have all your books so that they can know um, where to go to look for your books. But also, I'll make sure that they can be connected to the Center for Courage and Renewal. Um, and I mentioned in the intro that you're a a founding member and, um, and a facilitator. And, you know, I don't know if you remember, but I, I actually had the pleasure of meeting you when you spoke at an event that I had organized for teachers. Um, and then shortly after that, I had the pleasure of going through, uh, one of the Center for Courage and Renewal retreats in which you were the facilitator and, um, This was a deeply, deeply personal experience for me, uh, a growing experience for me. Uh, I would say it was also a master class in how to convene and how to facilitate conversations. And you use the word space. I think that's one of the beauties of the Courage and Renewal model, um, is the spaciousness that it affords, let's say, a group of teachers who are coming for a Courage and Renewal retreat for teachers and that's something that i think the breathing space the space to reflect the space to share the space to as you mentioned you know intersect personal with community all of those things happen in a retreat at the center for courage and renewal and um so i i definitely want our listeners to know to know about that and how that's so important in a teacher's life is is that sense of personal reflection, that sense of community. Um, and that helps us connect. And I, lo- I love the term that I've learned from you, Parker, which is connect soul and role. Mm-hmm.
1: Yep. Connecting
0: our soul and role. And I know that that, came, that really came to light for me when I read this book of yours, <laughs> Let Your Life Speak. Yeah. Um, and I, I read this book when I was kind of entering into my, what shall I say, middle years. Um, and I think that's kind of when we, when we start tuning in to this idea of alignment maybe um, and that whole idea that you know soul and role connecting soul and role is really important yeah so well thank you, talk you. those more are lovely that.
1: words to hear i mean i am laughing a little bit because i'm i'm headed toward the middle of my 80s so i guess that's the far side of what most most people <laughs> think of as the middle years but of course i remember laura and uh, i'm so grateful for your testimony and um, you know the, this work has, has been so rewarding for me, and it's always wonderful to hear that it's been rewarding for other people yeah. like like you. Um, but for me, it's been huge learning about the conditions under which other folks teach, and huge encouragement to see teachers like you rise to their own challenges in the in the presence and with the help of other people. So. For folks who who maybe wrestle with the word soul, I I love this notion that we help each help people connect soul and role, and soul is a word that nobody knows what it really means, and it has <laughs> cognates of many sorts in many traditions. But we sometimes say, help help people uh, bring their identity and integrity more fully into their personal vocational, professional, and public lives. Um, and so it's, it's, uh, it, it can serve anyone in, in any walk of life. And we now work, as you know, with many different professions, including medicine and nonprofit leadership and, and several- and clergy other. as well. Yeah, religion and philanthropy. So it's, it kind of addresses a very fundamental human need and I think what brings a lot of people there <clears throat> is pain. When you get into your the, the leading edge of your uh, middle years um, and you've kind of run out of that youthful energy and you're wondering why you're not feeling right about your life, you realize that there is this, this chasm between what you really want and need and hope for inwardly and what you're doing outwardly.
0: That yes. I call yes. it a
1: divided life.
0: Yes. And yes.
1: So then then for some people who really feel that pain, the the hunt is on for some way to bring the inner and outer in themselves into deeper congruence. Uh, and that's, I think, what the Center for Courage and Renewal helps people do through a a process that by this time is is you know. I would say, time-tested and proved. Um, you know, it's it's so different from the normal, I don't know, staff development program where somebody yeah. stands up, either cheerleads for the profession or tells you what you're doing wrong and how to get it right, uh, and then flips through the workbook. Now, you know, now let's turn the page now and you learn the next thing you need to do. Well, I, that, the truth is that kind of thing has never helped me because people are so different situations are so different human life is and just like all biological life is all about adaptation not about uh, you know a cookie cutter approach to anything and 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 so th- those those kind of training models or cheerleading models just I think, alienate a lot of people and uh, give methods a bad name, even though methods are useful, uh, depending on what you're doing and what works with your identity and integrity. you know i've I've seen good teaching, and this this is, of course, part of the heart of the courage to teach. I've seen good teaching in so many forms. I mean there are people who are brilliant lecturers who, who can mm-hmm. use that mode? Yeah. They're dramaturgists, is what they mm-hmm. are. You know, mm-hmm. they put on a kind of one woman or one man right, right. In
0: yeah, class,
1: yeah. and they draw you yeah. into that space yes. of learning. Yes. And then there are other people who do it all Socratic style, dialogical style. And then there's you know the the flipped class where you you don't use the class to instruct. You get the reading done outside, and you use the class to experiment and actually work with the uh, subject matter in question. So uh, it's really hard, I think, to make the case that there is somehow a template that fits all good teaching. There just isn't. Uh, that defies experience, but uh, there's this other way of growing growing people from the inside out.
0: Right. Yeah, and I think one thing, yes, thank you, thank you for that. And I think one thing that you said too, that I want to capitalize on is community. Um, and how you know we have found in our work at the Reading League that that the community of educators who all are striving to know more and do better, like know more about how do children develop as readers, what is the process of learning to read, um, how can I best instruct to that process, and how can I you know put aside some of these very old ideas that have been, you know, existing for 30, 40 years. How can I put that aside and make space for this, this, this newness? You know, how can I look at my role as a teacher with a beginner's mind? And how can I bring this new learning to fruition, to the betterment of my children and having, that's a heavy lift and having community around that, I think is something that we've we've been trying very hard to do and um, and we find it's in just um, just incredibly important.
1: Yeah, and as you know Laura, and there's more about this in that book a hidden wholeness. Um, what we do with community, we try to hold the paradox of community and solitude in in our circle yes, of trust. Yes, work. yes. And so the community that you that you're with in a courage to teach program is not a community that listens to you and then tells you what to do. In mm-hmm. fact, right. that's prohibited. Um, instead, it's a community that learns to listen deeply and then to hear you into deeper speech by asking you honest, open questions. So if a teacher expresses a pain, people don't just jump on that and say, oh, Heard poor dear, or, yeah, yeah or, poor mm-hmm. dear, I'm mm-hmm. so sorry, Here's what I did when I was in pain. I'm sure it'll work for you. Because you really can't get inside another person that way. But what you can do is hold them with honest, open questions that help them go deeper into what they're wanting to say about all this on their terms, in their own way, and in their own time. And there's a high art to asking honest, open questions, because educated people especially are accustomed... To asking questions that are little speeches in disguise. So, the example I always use is if somebody says, um, you know, I'm in really deep pain about X, Y, or Z, it's not an honest, open question to ask. Have you thought about seeing a therapist? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that's, that's like, a, that's yeah, like no. a classic. What you're, you yeah. know,
0: what you're really yeah. saying
1: is I think you ought to see a therapist. And yes, 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 yes. You're saying that further because, <laughs> oh my gosh, I now feel responsible for saving you, and I haven't got the foggiest idea what to say <laughs> about your pain. So let me check this one off by you know, saying, have, have you thought about seeing a therapist? that's taboo in our groups and our facilitators just stop that in our in their tracks but if you say if you listen to the person's story and and after some silent recept receptivity you say you used the word angry at this particular moment could you tell us more about that feeling and what evoked it in you um that helps a person think into or feel into but what, what it is they're trying to get out, and and as people get their own stuff out, rather than just letting it rattle around their heads and hearts, um, they often have self-curative powers
0: over mm. time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I had the, the privilege, I guess, of going through that clearness committee, and it really was... Um, To be deeply listened to is such a gift. And to learn those, and then within the the center's work, to learn those open questions that we can bring to people, um, that's a gift as well.
1: It is, yeah. Lots of people have have said that. They've said that, and the clearness committee is another concept in our work that's spelled out in a hidden wholeness, but uh, people have said, Wow, if I got a lot out of this, the single thing I maybe value the most is that clearness committee experience and learning how to hold another person in that totally focused space without imposing my agenda or or holding the arrogant assumption that I can or should save this person.
0: Yeah, right.
1: As soon as we let go of that, we we free everyone to let the human uh, thing happen, you know.
0: Yeah, I apologize. I think I said clearance. I meant clearness. Oh, yeah.
1: that's No, that's different. fine.
0: Totally yeah. different thing. Um, clearance
1: is what Macy's does. It,
0: correct. Yeah, I was, uh, yeah, somehow I got that, uh, you know, it's so easy to mix those two things up, right?
1: It is. I do it all the time.
0: <laughs> um, I wanted to talk to you about some of your current work because uh, I'm an avid listener to your podcast, The Growing Edge, with uh, Carrie Newcomer. Um, so, what enticed you to do a podcast, and are you enjoying
1: that? <laughs> well, I'm delighted <laughs> you're doing one, and
0: uh,
1: I really enjoy <laughs> thanks, being thanks. enjoy being your guest. I'm honored. Um, yeah, so about ten years ago, I I met this remarkable singer songwriter named Carrie Newcomer. Uh, she actually emailed me and said she'd read one of my books. I think it was Let Your Life Speak, and and it spoke to her, and um, she wondered if i would write the liner notes for her next album which for those since we don't really have albums albums anymore, we yeah have M- we have mp3s or something um uh, the albums used to come out either either old fashioned records or cd's with right, notes by right. somebody about these songs and this singer um and so i was delighted i wrote her i loved her music before i ever she ever contacted me, I wrote the liner notes, and we started a conversation, which is really across uh, disciplinary lines as well as uh, lines of age. I'm significantly older than Carrie. Um, And uh, um, for me, uh, as a word person, um, connecting creatively with a professional and very gifted musician, uh, has been a wonderful kind of stretching and opening experience on the creative side of my life. like like any partnership is across lines of of creative difference. Um, and so carrie, i I write some poetry, but Carrie is a poet at heart. I, I, she she is writing songs and yes. lyrics and poems all mm-hmm. the time. And so we Uh, got to talking one day and uh, decided to go with a quote from a Black theologian named Howard Thurman, who was actually a very uh, important mentor and guide to Martin Luther King Jr. uh, and a lot of other people in the the civil rights movement of the mid-20th century. King always carried two books with him. One was the Bible, and the other was a book um, called Jesus and the Disinherited by Howard Howard Thurman, Thurman, which was obviously a book about 12 generations of slavery in this country, and a liberation theology that responded to that, which King was embodying in his own life. So Howard Thurman, who was born in the late 1900s in Florida, whose grandmother, whom he knew was a former slave, he uh, has this has, a, has many luminous passages in his writing, but one of them is about how things are dying around us all the time, and all we need to do is look around us now, of course, in the middle of a pandemic and in the middle of what has been a lot of political chaos, some of it deadly um to see that yeah things are dying around us all the time but thurman says the hope is always found in the growing edge he says a a birth that's nature's answer to all this death but not just the birth of a child the birth of of an idea the birth of a hope the birth of a vision the birth into a new life of a person who's been defeated by despair and is now ready to you know contribute to the human possibility and so he says look always to the growing edge so we thought okay there is our theme we're going to establish a site called the growing edge that has a, a Program with several dimensions. Before, before COVID nineteen, we were doing face to face retreats, and we will get back to that as soon as we can. Um, we we do this. We do a newsletter every month, and every month uh, we do a podcast on a topic of of uh, the times, really. And it's a it's a podcast that almost always has a kind of inner life dimension to it, but it's sometimes you know, it sometimes has a lot of gravitas in it, but it often has—it usually has a lot of humor in it, and a, and sometimes a real lightness. I think our last podcast was with a wonderful guy named Ross Gay, uh, who uh, a black poet and, and essayist of, of great skill and, and real genius, who wrote uh, the book of delights. Uh, which is about how important it is to re- mark those moments of delight in one's average day, lest they slip on by. So it's a wide range of topics. But we do have our website. You can Google the Growing Edge, um, maybe toss in Palmer or Newcomer, or, or you can go to www.newcomerpalmer.com. Dot com, so it's n e w c o m e r newcomerpalmer dot and uh, see what see what we're what we're up to.
0: Great, right. and I will definitely put that in the show notes for people as well as the book of delights, um, so that people can reference that. Um, oh, good. So I was going to ask you about the the title, so that that does make perfect sense, right? How can we how can we stay on that growing edge?
1: Yeah, I think it's so important, um, you know, and again, we live in an era where it's just easy, I think, to fall into the shadow of death because it's all around us all the time. I mean, I, there's no American whose life is not touched by this pandemic in some way or another. And obviously, in such times, there's a tendency towards despair. But there's, there, Thurman's right, there's always a growing edge. And we can reach for it. and I have to say, there are some people who could say that, and I'd say, right, thank you for the encouragement, but I'm not sure they know what they're talking about. yeah, but when those words are uttered by a man who knew a grandmother who was a former slave, right. whose own life story had been deeply touched by twelve generations of servitude, and oppression, and who came found his way through all that into a teaching role, and in his case, a ministry. He was at Boston University as chaplain and professor of religion. Um, and, and then wrote books that influenced such people as Martin Luther King Jr. and many others in the mid-20th century civil rights movement. When those words come from a man like that or a woman like that, I I have to listen.
0: You have to listen. And I have
1: to suspend mm-hmm. disbelief.
0: Mm-hmm. I,
1: have, mm-hmm. I, I grant them authority in my life. And I say, Parker, if Howard Thurman can do it, if Rosa Parks can yeah. do it, if Fannie Lou Hamer can do it, if Martin Luther King Jr. can do it, surely you can do your own version of that, yeah. you know, on, on your own human scale. Right. It kind of robs a person of excuses for lying down and giving up. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Very beautiful. Well said, Parker. Yes. Yes. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed part one of this podcast with the wise and wonderful Parker Palmer. Please be sure to tune in to part two, where we will discuss the reading wars, the importance of healthy dialogue, community, listening well, and entering into conversation with a beginner's mind. You don't want to miss it. And thank you for tuning in. Thank you for being part of our teaching, reading and learning community.